Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes. Today unemployment falls but that doesn't mean we're escaping recession and you can tell that because central banks vow to keep interest rates at zero for a prolonged period. Thanks for your company here on the Money Minutes and today I think look the recession is pretty much right on track. Even better than expected employment numbers do give us a hint that things are going largely as you might have anticipated. I'll give you the sequence. The economy experiences a big shock. That was coronavirus. The share market collapses. The government freaks out, starts supporting jobs and the economy by spending, borrowing billions of dollars. The Reserve Bank cuts interest rates to zero. The stock market then rises and people, thinking they might be saved, start to spend money. Retail profits grow, people start buying shares, suddenly there's a boom. Even there's a few more jobs around. House prices start to rise from a brief slump. And why wouldn't they? Interest rates are so cheap. Eventually, government becomes convinced that things might be all right and start to withdraw the handouts. The Reserve Bank might even make some noises about eventually raising interest rates. But without the borrowed billions of dollars to support families and businesses being pumped into the economy, business starts to lay people off. Unemployment rises again. People can't pay their mortgages. Banks take a harder line. And eventually, house prices fall again. That last point, it still might be three to four years away. And let's hope it never comes. Because that would be the point when the real recession starts. Certainly not what we're going through now. And as we sit here today, that is pretty much the pattern of most modern recessions. The big question is whether government and central banks can disrupt that time-worn pattern. Shortly, I'll speak with Sarah Hunter, Chief Economist with BIS Oxford Economics, who'll take us through the meaning of the unemployment numbers. And I'll even ask her a little bit about economic history. She's good on this and about what might be different this time around. But let's start with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, giving the news about the unemployment rate. We recognise that despite this fall today in Australia's official unemployment rate, many Australians are doing it tough. And that the road to recovery will be long, it will be hard, and it will be bumpy. Now the Treasurer, remember, is a proud Victorian, but he wasn't beyond playing a bit of borderline partisanship over those numbers. In lockdown Victoria, it's obviously noticeable that the jobs market is not going to recover as quickly as in other states. So New South Wales has been a standout in terms of its performance, um, both in managing the virus, uh, dealing with the, the number of cases that it is on a daily basis and containing that, but also keeping its economy open and is the single largest economy uh, in the country, it's very important in these figures. What we do know is those is that closed borders cost jobs. And we've been very outspoken about the human impact too of those closed borders. Let's bring into this conversation Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. Now, she's a member of their macroeconomics team, will have been watching these employment numbers very, very closely, which, as I say, on the face of it, they're, they're terrific figures, very positive uh, and you'd have to say that there are parts of Australia, not Victoria, that are bouncing back. Sarah, many thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Is that the read at the moment? I mean, seasonally adjusted employment increasing by 111,000 people between July and August suggests that if you are not locked down in Victoria right now, that life is getting a little bit back to normal. Not completely, but a little bit back to normal. 
Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Certainly, obviously, if you're one of those those people that gained a job in, in August or was re-employed having lost their job earlier in the pandemic, then that that's definitely the case. And yeah, I'd agree that um, broadly speaking, it's a stronger uh, read than I was expecting. I thought that the the lockdown in Victoria would have had more of an impact and more of a drag on that total employment number. The other parts of the country recovering, that, that was to be expected. But uh, I did think that we'd see more of a fall as a result of lower employment in Victoria. And is there also an implication, do you think, that once Victoria does reopen, eventually we're seeing the number of cases uh, of coronavirus there diminishing literally by the day as we're speaking, as its economy starts to open up, that we'll see similar rebounds in employment and therefore economic activity? I think it's uh, we should see uh, a jump as you get the sort of big amounts of, of reopening underway. So when we uh, maybe sooner, of course, as you say, the case numbers are coming down. But once we get to the stage where uh, big chunks of retail are able to reopen, uh, some of the, the cafes, restaurants and other parts of hospitality, once, once they're able to open up, then uh, you should see a, yeah, a rebound in employment in Victoria. Because that's what we saw um, after the first lockdown that obviously happened uh, nationally. And we'd expect that to be repeated again. Uh, the big question, of course, going forward after that, and it's a question for the whole macro economy right now, is uh, notwithstanding these numbers being very positive, and they, they absolutely are, uh, we're still a long way off in employment uh, in terms of where we were uh, pre-COVID. And the, the key thing is how how much more rebound is there and how much more of it is of that those job losses are permanent in that some businesses have closed, um, others are facing um, you know reduced demand for their services, and so they're just not going to be taking everybody back on board. Uh, that's what we're going to see as we, we go through the month. So yes, there's probably more strength to come through as Victoria reopens, but as we go into 2021, perhaps uh, you know we're going to we are going to see a moderation, and, and that's where the, the challenge will be. And that's because even as the treasurer has been pointing out himself accurately, I think while the unemployment rate is down the underemployment rate remains at 11.2%. And that, I I suspect, might be perhaps a truer reflection of the the real nature of employment in Australia uh, today. Well, I think there's a few things, actually. uh, That is one of them to flag. I think there's um, also looking at the participation rate. Um, It's pretty important at the moment as well. But so, yeah, the underemployment rates of people who are the unemployed plus people that are working who aren't working as many hours as they would like. That's a really, uh, that is an important metric because that tells us a little bit about, you know, perhaps some people that are getting job keeper payments. So they're formally still in their job, but they're not working their usual hours. And so we know that, that we need to get those people back to work um, in terms of a, a recovery. We can also see with the, with that participation rate, there's a lot of people who lost their job um, in, you know, in April um, and in May who uh, have moved out out of the labour force completely. Um, and the uh, the interesting thing about the data today was that we didn't see, um, we actually saw a fall in the unemployment rate rather than a rise. And I, I was expecting that we might see a rise in the unemployment rate as some of those people who'd lost their jobs earlier in the pandemic, perhaps re-entered the workforce, started to look for work again, and we would count them then as unemployed. That doesn't seem to have happened because the participation rate hasn't changed at all. And the, the labour force has effectively shrunk by just over 200,000 people from March to now. So really, there's 200,000 people who lost their jobs who are, are not even looking for a new job right now. And and, and that's obviously a bit of a concern. And, and those people, you would think, ultimately do want to be working and, and they need to be 
be re-employed uh, as well before we, we get the labour market back to normal, as it were. So there's an underemployed component, but there's also this uh, shrinkage of the labour force going on as well that we need to keep in the back of our minds. Yeah, because that's my grave fear going forward. And I'm thinking here 12 to 18 months uh, into the future, because as the JobKeeper program comes off, and as you point out, that could, might be masking some of this underemployment in our community. A second part about it is there's a range of companies right now that may be technically insolvent, which continue to trade because the government obviously has rules that doesn't allow those companies to go broke at the moment, which could again lead to unemployment. Uh, and what, uh, what I'm worried about is that there's a bottleneck of, of hurt that's coming down the track that might lead to increases in the unemployment rate, not with, notwithstanding the fact that this is, on the face of it, good news that more people immediately are back in jobs. Yeah, that's certainly something that we're watching as well, uh, is w- what happens when we start to unwind JobKeeper um, and, uh, and are there sort of more permanent job losses to materialise. And uh, I certainly think notwithstanding the fall in the unemployment rate, I think if you sort of consider the effective rate when you add in the people who are working zero hours, the people that have dropped out of the labour force, that's still obviously very, very elevated. Um, and, uh, and so are we going to see a, a formal increase in the official rate as some of those um, things play through the system. I do think that's likely that, that this will be something of a blip, uh, this this August print. Quite where the official rate ends up, uh, we obviously don't know, and, and it may not top out at the sort of 10% rates that um, people were previously saying. But if that's because uh, some people just leave the labour force and don't come back in, and uh, then that's not really a positive sign necessarily. It's more a, a question of where we're counting people. So, um, yeah, I think that there are ch- definitely challenges uh, ahead and we are you know, starting to get some announcements around some of the more permanent job losses. We've had a few just over the last few days around the higher education sector, for example. And those are the job losses, which is harder to recover because they're more you know, uh, fundamentally driven that, that the universities think there's less demand for their services so that they can't keep on their current staffing levels. Um, and, and that's uh, obviously a much more concerning job loss than somebody who's temporarily not working because of said the lockdown in Melbourne, but you know, their job will come back and, and will continue once they can get back to work. So it's that first group that I'm particularly concerned about. Yeah, and of course, the travel industry is another, for the moment at least anyway, that's Mm. uh, got some Mm. fundamental flaws and you just doubt whether all the jobs will return. The Reserve Bank, of course, is one of those organisations that had forecasts of a 10% unemployment rate. We know it will be watching it in terms of where it has interest rate settings in Australia. Uh, The perception is that really it's going to be for the very long term, uh, very low. That's the message coming from the Reserve Bank. But the US Federal Reserve, uh, which does also influence thinking in other parts of the world, has effectively said that uh, it wants rates to stay as low as they are for the next three years and then has given almost a timetable of what it would require for interest rates to start to rise, including allowing inflation to rise beyond uh, that uh, 2% target. Here's Jerome Powell, chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, on exactly that subject. With regard to interest rates, we now indicate that we expect it will be appropriate to maintain the current 0 to one quarter percent target range for the federal funds rate until labor market conditions have reached levels, levels consistent with the committee's assessments of maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2%, and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. So, Sarah, what's he saying here exactly? I think what they're 
they're really trying to achieve is, is two things uh, mainly. One is they really want to anchor inflation expectations at 2%. So they really, they're very credible. They want, they want to be, that to be a credible target for them. And so they're acknowledging that there has been prior to the pandemic, you know, a few years where they missed that target that, that inflation was running below. And so they're, uh, they're sort of reasserting and, and really confirming that no, that is the target that we're looking for. Um, and we're looking to now achieve it on average, which means that you will, uh, well, they should at least let inflation run hot, if you like, a little bit over that 2% to compensate for periods where it, it might have run below that 2%. And so they're really anchoring that in. I think the other main thing that they're, they're really communicating, and this is something the RBA have, have really communicated very strongly as well, is uh, monetary conditions, interest rates are going to be low for quite some time. People really don't worry about ha- having to face higher interest rates, be that um, consumers, individuals on their mortgages, businesses when they're looking at taking on borrowing to invest. They're not going to have to worry about higher interest rates um, over the near term. So you can sort of uh, take that debt on and, and, and confidently know what you're going to be repaying. Okay, well, on that subject, here's just Jay Powell, a little bit more of him on exactly that subject. Many borrowers are benefiting benefiting from these programs, as is the overall economy. But for many others, getting a loan that may be difficult to repay may not be the answer. In these cases, direct fiscal support may be needed. Elected officials have the power to tax and spend and to make decisions about where we, as a society, should direct our collective resources. The fiscal policy actions that have been taken thus far have made a critical difference to families, businesses, and communities across the country. And that's really crucial. A lot of uh, particularly business investment uncertainty is a, is a bit of a killer. And uh, if you can take away at least one bit of uncertainty around interest rates and the cost of a loan, then, then that is helpful. It also, uh, also anchors borrowing rates uh, across the whole economy. And again, it means that the banking system can be really confident on what they're going to have to pay uh, for, the, for the liquidity they need. And then they pass that on to, to their borrowers. So, yeah, it's all about really setting a platform of very, very loose monetary conditions until the recovery is really well established because the US is sort of similar to here in terms of those job numbers. They've come back really strongly, but they've got a long way to go yet. Sarah, I know that you're a student of history when it comes to economics. And in particular, I know that you've done a lot of work around World War One on Britain's position in the global economy. But I also know that you've studied uh, the Great Depression of the 30s in some detail. Just tell me, is this recession we're experiencing now is it different to previous recessions or are there similarities in the way in which they play out? Uh, I think in terms of um, the trigger is obviously very different to uh, to the Great Depression. That's very much a, a financial crisis. And then obviously this time is, is very different to that in terms of the, the pandemic and forced restrictions and closures of the economy. But in terms of the, uh, the impulse through the economy, it's, it's a very big negative shock to demand that then feeds into the labor market and jobs and, and plays through. I think uh, one of the key differences between then uh, and now is um, the policymakers and, and you know economists' understanding of how the economy works and the responses that are really going to be critical um, to to uh, getting the economy back on track and, and back to to full employment and, and operating um, at, at, in normal way, in at normal conditions. They didn't really know uh, that in the 1930s. They hadn't experienced um, a substantial shock. Like, uh, like the Great Depression, you know, the financial crisis, the crash of 29 at that point in time. And um, as a result, the policy settings really weren't very helpful. They actually tightened monetary policy. So they raised interest rates, the Fed, uh, because they thought that that was an appropriate thing to 
do. They were concerned about the banking system and thought that they needed to um, uh, raise rates to tackle that. Uh, fiscal policy as we know it today, so stimulus um, being pumped into the economy, lots of spending from government, uh, that really wasn't tried until um, FDR kept, became president in the US in 1932 and in other countries as well. It, it didn't really come until much later. So they responded in a very different way, which uh, exacerbated, greatly exacerbated uh, the initial negative impulse from uh, the Wall Street crash in 29. It's obviously very, very different now. We know a lot more about um, how to tackle, try and offset some of the uh, the negatives. And we are, and we've learned again from the financial crisis too, that, that taught uh, policymakers a lot about um, what you have to worry about, what you don't have to worry about. And so uh, I think, yeah, even though the the, uh, the initial conditions uh, essentially look quite similar in terms of the size of the job losses and that sort of thing, I think we can be confident that it's not going to be as bad uh, over the medium term because we're going to do a much better job of fighting uh, what's happening and tackling it, of providing the support uh, that's necessary to to keep the economy going and to ultimately get us back to, to normal and, and through and out the other side. So one of the very finest economists in this country, Chief Economist at BIS <laughs> Oxford Economics, is Sarah, Sarah Hunter. Sarah, I'm very pleased I asked you that question, by the way. It was a great question to ask. No. And it was a very great response as well, and I appreciate your time. Oh, sure. No worries. Thank you very much. So here's the message from today's episode. Interest rates are staying down for the medium to long term, three years at least. Governments will keep pumping money into people's hands for as long as they conceivably can. And for now, they're trying to show that they've learned from previous recessions, that they won't drop the ball and make the downturn even deeper and more hurtful for the community. But, and here's the big but, the more there appears to be recovery, the more tempting it will be for policymakers and opposition politicians to make a case that the support should be withdrawn or can be withdrawn. Because as we've said here before, what's the use of government propping up worthless companies that would otherwise collapse when the smart thing to do might be to allow others to come in, buy them cheaply and build them back up again? My thanks to Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. Your comments always are welcome via Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes.